Welcome everyone to The Lighthouse, a podcast series dedicated to providing advanced financial planning and wellness insights to the clients and families we serve. My name is Jack Butler and my business partner, John Stanford and I are financial advisors with the Hatteras Wealth Management Group at UBS, located at 6100 Fairview Road in Charlotte, North Carolina. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Brian Rose, Senior Economist Americas at UBS, who will give us a high-level overview of federal debt levels, inflation, and the deficit. Many clients have understandably asked a lot of questions around these different topics, so we wanted to invite an expert on the show who will be able to address some of these issues at a high level. As always, we welcome your questions and feedback, and we hope you enjoy the show. Well, Brian, I want to first start off by saying thank you for joining us in the Lighthouse podcast. I know our audience is going to get a tremendous amount of value from hearing your thoughts today. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Well, we're certainly glad to have you, especially since the federal debt, budget deficit, and inflation are all very complicated but important topics for all of our clients. And all three of those dynamics seem to be the main component for a doomsday scenario these days, whether it's in the media or on the internet. Before, but before we get into your remarks, Brian, would you mind just sharing with us a brief background of your career and how it led to where you are today at UBS? Sure. So uh, I actually started my career in Japan. That was my first job uh, out of school. And I think very relevant for the discussion today because Japan uh, is at the, an extreme example of high government debt levels. So I think we can learn something about uh, you know, the U.S. by looking at, at their uh, experience. And also, I should say, my, you know, my, I have a PhD in economics. My thesis work was on economic demography, so the relationship between the economy and the population. And I think this is also relevant because a lot of the issues that we're dealing with are driven by demographics. Well, that, that certainly is the case. That's actually something I was going to you know, bring up towards the end of the conversation, just due to the, the dynamics that we have here in this country, as opposed to maybe what Europe and Japan are facing. So you're definitely the right guy to talk to when it comes to all of this stuff, because clearly in, in, the, in the media and in headlines and the news these days, there's just we have so many clients asking about the national debt. You know, it was roughly six trillion 20 years ago in the year 2000 and is now currently around 28 trillion. Debt to GDP in the year 2000 was approximately 50 percent and is now at 125%. So quite a significant increase. And to put it into perspective, national debt comes out to about $88,000 per person in the US. So really, Brian, my question is, how big of a problem is our national debt? And what are the ramifications for if these trends continue? Yeah, so I think it's important to keep this in perspective. Uh, So according to the Federal Reserve estimates, US households, have 159 trillion in assets, right? So we have, we have a lot of debt, but we have a lot of wealth too. And US household wealth has gone up by more than $30 trillion just since March, 2020. So that's when uh, you know, we, we went into lockdown because of the pandemic and stock market uh, was down since then. So in the last year and a half or so, household wealth is up by more than 30 trillion. So by more than the total government uh, debt. So, you know, I know it, it, 28 trillion is a lot, but I still think it's manageable. Now, if at some point we don't get back onto a sustainable path in, in terms of public finances, then, you know, eventually there could be a crisis. And by crisis, I mean that, 
you know, we're not able to sell our debt or roll over our, our debt at a reasonable interest rate. And once that starts to happen, you, you know, you have big problems. But, you know, I don't think we're anywhere uh, near that point. Uh, I think, you know, you look at where interest rates are, we're not having any trouble issuing, issuing debt in, into the market. Uh, we can keep going on this path for, I think, uh, at least a few more years. But at, at some point, you have to do something. You can't go on this way just building up debt year after year after year. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting way of looking at it in the sense that if you look at America's balance sheet and they have $160 or $160 trillion of assets and $30 trillion in debt, I guess when you put it that way, it kind of puts it in perspective. But you bring up interest rates because that's a perfect segue to my next question in that you know when we when we look at the interest that we're currently paying on our debt with 10 year treasury being around you know 1.5% today if rates rise to 3 to 4% the interest payments alone will account for a significant amount of our federal budget so what will happen for the economy and financial markets for if this were to happen all right so well one thing to keep in mind is that if interest rates go up it's only the newly issued debt where we'd have to pay the higher interest rates, right? So, uh, for example, we're, we're issuing you know ten year debt now at around one and a half percent interest, and it takes ten years for those bonds to mature. So, for at least those ten years, we're only paying one and a half percent, regardless if you know interest rates go up in the interim. We have you know we're issuing thirty year bonds at at low rates, so it, it would take quite some time for the higher rates to impact. The, the, the you know the, say the federal government's budget, but in the longer run, yeah, one one percent higher interest rate when your debt is over a hundred percent of GDP, then well now you need to raise taxes by one percent of GDP, a couple hundred billion dollars uh, at at the moment just to offset uh, one one percent higher uh, rate. So yeah, the math gets pretty scary pretty quickly if rates start to to go up. And I'd say more importantly, financial markets. They won't like it, right? Uh, you know, if if interest rates go up uh, that much, and also imagine, you know, trying to buy a house if the mortgage rates were three percent higher than they are right now. You know, this is this is what's helping to drive home prices higher is the fact that rates are so low. You can afford to spend a lot on a house because you can you can afford the monthly payment. If rates were you know three hundred basis points higher, you you couldn't. So. You know there there would be serious consequences of of uh, you know sudden sudden rise in rates. Although you know there's also an upside to this, which is that savers like higher interest rates. Right? If you're a retiree, you you have some savings that's earning zero interest right now. If rates go up, and then uh, the, you know the savers benefit. They'll get they'll get more interest on their uh, their money. So you know every every debt is someone's asset, right? Like if if we, you owe owe money, you owe it to somebody, and the person who holds uh, you know holds the asset side benefits from from higher rates. So it's not all uh, negative, but certainly you know a sudden adjustment in interest rates would be very disruptive to to the economy and and to financial markets. Yeah, I think the Fed is doing everything they can to make sure that that doesn't happen because, like you said, it, it really there's a, a catch twenty two and a, a fine line that's happening when, when it comes to higher rates in the sense that the, the negatives of higher rates are, you know, debt becomes more expensive, taxes could go up, but it's, it's better for savers and, you know, bonds end up doing better. So uh, clearly a, a fine line that the Fed is trying to, to walk there. But 
Looking kind of more at the the deficit here uh, for a second, because you know, really the fact that we got here to you know twenty eight thirty trillion dollars of of national debt, it's just simply due to the fact that we've been spending more than we've been making for years. So you know, there are folks out there that believe that not only is a long term budget deficit sustainable, but it's actually preferable to running a surplus. So I mean, I was raised to believe that you shouldn't spend more than you make, but what's your view on this? There is, uh, at least within reason, good reasons for the government to to sometimes run uh, budget deficits to spend more than uh, they are collecting in in taxes. But you know you can't you can't do this forever, at least not to an, you know the degree we are right now. And you know one thing that people ask a lot is you know how are we ever going to pay this debt back? So if you think you know as as a as a individual or as a household. You know, at some point, you have to pay your debts back. You can't, you can't just keep building up debt forever. But for government, that's really not uh, the case. And the answer to the question is, you know, when will we pay this back? The answer is, well, we're not going to pay it back. And if you look throughout history, you know, very long run, there are very few examples of governments paying off substantial debts. And the difference between countries that run up a lot of debt and successfully manage it and countries that don't manage it and end up blowing up in, into a big financial crisis. The difference is you know, keeping the economy going so that relative to the size of the economy, the debt doesn't seem so, so high anymore. So, you know, like we're talking about, debt is over 100% of GDP now. But if you know, we can get GDP to double, now the debt level doesn't seem so, so bad anymore. And really, the you know the again the countries that have been successful at managing these situations, what they've done is they've grown the economy over time while keeping the level of debt relatively steady. So you know every year the economy grows, government revenue tends to increase along with with GDP, uh, and moderate inflation also helps because uh, again it doesn't matter really if GDP growth is coming from real growth or from inflation. Either way, government tax revenue goes up. Uh, so, you know, good economic growth, moderate inflation, low interest rates, all of these things help, uh, you know, public finances over, uh, over the long run. And what I've been saying is that, you know, the way out of this is don't let the Fed raise interest rates. Keep interest rates low. If the Fed ever starts talking about raising rates, at that point, you know, we should do something on the fiscal side in, instead, because you know our problem is our budget deficit is too big. The solution is to you know, raise taxes or cut spending when the economy is good. So when the economy is so good that the Fed's thinking, you know, we, we should start raising rates soon, that's the time to step in and say, hey, you know, we're going to raise taxes, we're going to cut spending, we're not going to let the Fed uh, raise rates, which you know, as we're talking about, higher rates make things more difficult. So keep rates low and you know, just do do something when the economy is strong to to narrow the budget deficit. Yeah, you bring up a great point about you know just the 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 idea of really coming down to figuring out you know how we're going to raise money and how we're going to spend it. And unfortunately, that that often becomes a, a political kind of debate. Um, many, many spouses often argue over a budget, so it's no surprise that when 450 people in Washington D.C. talk about budgeting, 
it's not very productive. It doesn't really go anywhere and the can ends up getting kicked down the road. So my question is that how in the world are elected officials in DC ever going ever gonna to come to an agreement on this? And what's the likelihood of that happening? Because you're right, there has to be some you know, median that, that, that's, that's found here to, to better address this. Yeah, so I would say, you know, the dysfunction we're seeing in Washington uh, right now is, is really discouraging. And if you look, you know, again, very long term, in terms of, you know, uh, you know what makes uh, some countries successful economically, uh, it, you know, good government is extremely important. There's no advantage that's big enough to overcome bad government policy. And if you look, say, 500 years ago, China was by far the biggest economy in the world. And then, uh, you know, they just sort of disappeared in terms of global GDP, absolutely, you know, dropped off uh, the map until around 50 years ago. Right? China was a really poor country. And then, you know, they changed their, their, their policies. And it's not like their policy is perfect, but they just, you know, the government policy became somewhat less bad, right? And all of a sudden, China's taking off, right? Extremely rapid growth, more rapid growth than we've seen from a big economy ever, you know, in, in the history of the world. And now they're threatening to overtake us in terms, in terms of, the, you know, the size of the economy. So, you know, again, the government policy is extremely important and, uh, you know, right at the moment, it is hard to see, you know, how are we ever going to, uh, you know, reach a political uh, consensus? Although and I would say it wasn't that long ago, back when uh, Obama was president and Boehner was Speaker of the House, they came very close to reaching a deal that would have done a lot to put government finances back on a sustainable path. So they were talking about a combination of tax hikes and also uh, spending cuts, including uh, changes to the entitlement programs to reduce uh, the cost. And that would have gone a long way to dealing with our, our public finance problems. And, you know, they were close. It was just, you know, uh, on, on uh, the Republican side, Boehner just couldn't quite get enough votes to, to, pass, uh, to pass this. But it was, you know, it was fairly close. So, you know, and again, this was only, only a few years ago. It's not like it was, you know, this was 100 years ago. So it's possible that the political situation will change and eventually we'll, we'll reach some kind of, you know, grand bargain that gets, uh, you know, gets things back on, on path. But right at the moment, it, it looks really discouraging. Uh, it's hard to see politically how we're ever going to reach a compromise. And this has to be, you know, a broad compromise. It can't just be barely passing something through uh, reconciliation, you know, you need bipartisan cooperation and agreement, you know, that, that will uh, change things for, for the long run. Well, you bring up, you know, good governance and, and policy as being critical to all of this. And it just seems like that. I think a lot of our clients would, would understand that it'd be one thing for us to raise some revenue with higher taxes, but then to go and spend it three and four times over, uh, seems to be counterproductive. And so my, my question is that over the last several decades, we've seen the GDP growth rate contract. And I know there's a lot of different factors to that and demographics. We'll get to that in a second. But we've also seen over the last few decades, government has grown 10 times faster than GDP. And even after the, the uh, tax, job, uh, tax Jobs and, and Cuts Act of uh, 2017, 
we saw up until the pandemic almost record levels of revenue, but it was the spending that seemed to just continue to rise significantly. So I guess my question, Brian, is you know, what is the correlation to tax revenues and GDP? And you mentioned earlier that growth is really going to be the key of getting us out of this right now. But you know, why are we then focusing on policies that's going to take money out of GDP? whether it's higher taxes and maybe some of these other initiatives, can, can you just address kind of those, those dynamics for the audience today? All right. In my view, if you look at the U.S., you know, in an international comparison, say with other advanced economies or the rest of the OECD countries, the U.S. really stands out in terms of how low our tax revenue is. So it's not that our spending is unusually high. It's that our tax revenue is unusually low. So I think tax hikes will inevitably be part of the solution. You know, we, I don't see any way politically that spending could ever be cut enough to get the budget deficit down. We're going to have to raise some, some revenue. But on the spending side, you know, the thing that really stands out is uh, the entitlement programs, especially if you look at the, you know, long-term dynamics. We need to do something uh, about the medical expenses. So, you know, we're, we're spending around twice as much per capita as the rest of the world is on, on medical care. And our outcomes are, are you know, in many cases uh, worse. So something is going to have to be done to, you know, contain the cost of medical care because, you know, the government is on the hook for a lot of those expenses, right? The Medicare, Medicaid um even say uh you know the tax breaks on on private medical insurance that costs the government you know tons of revenue so something has to be done to suppress the costs of uh, of medical care and uh otherwise forget it there there's simply no way that the math can work because you know the population is aging and the medical costs rise exponentially as people get older you know, it's not just that you have more people over 65, but you have more, you know, 80-year-olds, 90-year-olds uh, who need a lot more uh, med- medical care. And you look at the projections, this is really what tips us over to the point of you know, totally unsustainable public finances is, is the medical expenses. Uh, but the good news, I would say, is, you know, if we can do something about it, it's a real opportunity to cut the budget deficit. Right. So, uh, you know, there's discussions on the way to do something about uh, drug pricing. This would save the government a lot of money if we can lower lower drug costs. It would it would save obviously consumers money, but it would save the government money. too. So I think this will have to be a priority. And again, it's not impossible. Pretty much every other country in the world is managing to do this except us. So if we can if we can just catch up with the rest of the world, it'll go a long way to. You know, solve, solving some of our longer term problems. I guess some would say, though, just to, to play devil's advocate, though, that you know, while tax revenues are, 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 are lower compared to other countries around the world, I think there's, there's no debating the fact that you know, the, the country, as we stated earlier, has $160 trillion of, of assets and wealth. And you look at the entrepreneurship, the innovation, the, just the advancements that we've made in the private sector over the last several decades and the, the benefit that that's had a greater society and the, the impact that's had on per capita GDP, 
in comparison to you know Europe or Asia or, or you know South America, other parts of the world that have just really struggled to get off life support, if you will. So you know that, that that's probably a uh, a much deeper debate, and that that kind of goes back to our points earlier about you know what is that balance between the things that are important, like you mentioned, the entitlement spending, medical care. I mean that stuff has to be addressed at some point, but you know being able to support that without necessarily inhibiting a lot of those economic dynamics and growth and things of that nature. So I think that's, that's extremely important. Well, I'd important. say this again, it, it, it does go back to good government. And this has been a core strength for the U S is, um, you know, government policy that, that supports uh, economic growth. Uh, you know, you have a legal system, right. That lets you enforce, um, you know, patents and, and uh, other, other you know, property rights, those, those basic fundamentals are really important, and it is it is one of the reasons why the U.S. has been so successful. Is um, you know is that it's a place where you can invest and make money, and you know companies can businesses can grow. Uh, so it's important to um, maintain that, uh, and important not to go you know totally crazy with with taxes to the point where you know, businesses flee or no one's willing to invest, uh, you know, in, in new business, you, you have to keep things reasonable. But again, you just look at us compared to everyone else. It's, it's, uh, you know, it really stands out how little, how little revenue the government is raising. And, and I, I think, you know, business, uh, you know, revenue from businesses, corporate income taxes is going to have to be part of the solution, it's extremely low, uh, you know, right now in, in the U.S. You know, we used to raise, um, you know, several times more relative to GDP than we are now from from business taxes. So this, you know, I think uh, will be part of it. But again, uh, important not to go not to go overboard. Mm-hmm. And one thing I want to talk about, Brian, was just examples of countries who have run into issues faced by demographic and and deficit national debt he- uh, headwinds like Japan. So I, I have been biting my tongue this entire time, and you had mentioned that earlier, to wait for this moment to, to get your thoughts around this, because I, I, was ha- I was listening to a conference yesterday, and it was just talking about the demographic issues around the world. So Japan is losing about a million people a year. Europe's using, losing about 500,000 people a year. United States is only growing at about 0.75% of its population per year. But it, they also kind of talk about how population can correlate to booms and busts in economic cycles. So, for example, baby boomers entered the workforce in the 70s. Uh, they peaked in 1999, and then we had a subsequent secular bear market in the, the, the ensuing years. So I know there's a lot of other factors at play in that, but population being one of them. Generation X peaked in 2018, but the millennial generation won't peak until 2038. So this one strategist that, that I was listening to was saying that you know, in theory, we could see a secular bull market continue to expand for the next 17 years here in the United States because of the demographic shift as the millennials enter peak earning years. And you also look at the dynamics of the fact that we have a over 5 million house um, home shortage here in the United States and a $70 trillion wealth transfer from the boomers to millennials that's going to happen over the next 25 years. So surely there has to be a pretty positive you know, tailwind for things going forward. Uh, I just want to get your thoughts on all of that. 
So relative to almost all the other advanced economies, U.S. demographics are are better. You know, we have a higher higher birth rate, younger population. So we are in better shape than most, you know, most other countries. Uh, and again, especially, you know, you look at Japan, it is absolutely stunning. Almost 30% of the, the population is now elderly or above, above the age of 65. Uh, so we're in better shape in that front. Although, you know, things have changed. Just over the last few years, things have changed for the worse. So, you know, we have birth rates have gone down a, a lot. Especially, you know, the U.S., what's helped U.S. demographics is the immigration. So you have young, young immigrants come in, and they also have tended to have a lot more kids. So, you know, that's one reason why our birth rates are relatively high is that, you know, immigrants are having lots of kids. But recently this has changed. You know, there's less immigrants coming in. And also the birth rate among immigrants has suddenly dropped. So just, again, just over the last few years, suddenly... You know, things aren't looking as good as as they uh, used to. But of course, you know, if we want to, we can always take more immigrants, right? There's no no shortage of people who want to come to, to the U.S. So we can, uh, you know, deal with our, our problems by, um, you know, through immigration. And, and also we can, you know, again, unlike, say, a country like Japan, we can attract not not just people, but, you know, highly capable people, right? People who are highly educated, people who can produce a, a lot of economic uh, growth for us. Uh, so, you know, we do have uh, we do have choices and, you know, we're not going to see the extreme pressure that, that uh, some other countries are, are facing. And, you know, you look, say, especially at, at China, you know, they had the one-child policy for a long time. Their demographics are absolutely crazy, and we've never seen this in the history of mankind. There's never been anything like this, where the population is going to be aging so rapidly. Such an imbalance between you know, young workers and older people who are who are uh, you know retired. So you know this uh, you know this is some something for the U.S. I, I'm not so overly you know overly concerned about, but again. The one, the one thing that stands out is the medical care. Something has to be done with that. Otherwise, it, it will blow us, government finances and the economy. You know, we have to do, uh, we have to do something. Yeah, but other than that, I'd say, you know, we, we just have to make sure the U.S. remains an attractive place to have kids and also for, for immigrants to, to come in. You know, it has to be that we can continue to Get younger workers in if we if we need them. Right, right. That's uh, couldn't agree more with everything that you had just said. And I, I think you know one of the things that you can link you know population growth to is is inflation or, or the, uh, the the factor of, of hyperinflation, which I think is what a lot of clients are mainly concerned about. As we've seen a lot of kind of the inflation head the inflationary headlines uh, hit the wires here over the last year. I think a lot of them have scar tissue from the seventies, and they're worried about us going back to somewhere that realm again. And then, you know, others, you know, maybe from a more historical lens may view it from, you know, what happened to Germany in the thirties and in Argentina when you know, the government was just printing money like crazy and you ended up having hyperinflation. But it was to my understanding that, you know, in order for us to get to that level of inflation again, you'd have to have a population growth rate of six to 10%, which we're nowhere near, but just talk a little bit about inflation and maybe how all those dynamics kind of play into what's happening now and uh, your your views on inflation and where things are going from here. 
All right. So obviously, you know, we are seeing an unusual amount of inflation uh, recently. And, uh, you know, this is driven mostly by shortages uh, on the good side. So, you know, why is inflation so high? It's because goods prices, which have been falling, you know, overall goods prices have been falling uh, outright in, in recent years. You know, every year, the price of all of our technology, you know, computers and smartphones and, uh, you know, TV sets, every year those prices have been going down and that's helped to lower the, the you know, overall inflation. But recently we have, you know, widespread shortages, right? So everything is, everything is insurance, especially the computer chips, you know, the, those shortages are a big problem uh, for us, but, uh, you know, this is putting a lot of upward pressure on prices. When uh, when the pandemic hit, you know, and people are, you know, staying home more, suddenly there was a huge shift in demand. Instead of, you know, going out to eat or traveling or, you know, uh, doing other, other things in the, in the service economy, people wanted to buy more stuff. You know, the demand for durable goods suddenly skyrocketed. And we don't have the capacity to produce the stuff that people want to buy. So, you know, you have an uh, imbalance between supply and demand. And on top of that, now we have, there's lots of labor shortages where businesses are struggling to find uh, workers. In some cases, you know, you have to raise wages a lot to get the workers that you need. All of this is, you know, creating inflationary uh, pressure. But going forward, I think it's extremely unlikely that you could have, you know, High inflation driven only by goods prices, while service prices stay contained. And, uh, you know, so the current situation, I think, will not last uh, very long. Uh, the danger for inflation is if you start to see service price inflation arising more rapidly. So if we get into the cycle, you know, like we did, uh, you know, say, say in late 70s, where you know, wages are rising rapidly, and the businesses are passing along those higher wage costs into prices, and you get into this spiral where you know, year after year you have high inflation, you know, that's where you could have um, you know, more of a longer-term problem. And you know, this is really critical. Uh, right now, the Fed is getting a lot of leeway. They still have a lot of credibility. And Fed Chair Powell reminds us every single time he appears in public, every time without fail, he reminds us that you know, inflation is too high. And if it threatens to get stuck at too high a level, you know, the Fed has tools to deal with that. And, we, you know, the Fed won't hesitate to use them if needed. And Powell says this every time he, he's in, in the public. So as long as the Fed has credibility, you know, I, I, and, and they're staying to that policy, I, I wouldn't get uh, worried. Because, uh, you know, as, as Powell says, and as we saw in, in the 80s when we broke the back of inflation, if the Fed raises interest rates enough, you know, inflation, inflation will, uh, will come down. And that's certainly my expectation, is, is that if inflation really threatens to become a big problem for the longer run, the Fed will step in and do something about it. Although, as we were talking about earlier, you know, that has consequences, right? Higher interest rates have a lot of negative consequences that you'd have to deal with. But I don't, I don't think inflation will be a big problem for us in, in the longer run. Yeah, I think I've seen 
some uh, some articles that you've you've written and people on your team have written about the fact that the Fed has more tools to combat inflation as opposed to deflation. So it probably uh, you know it really is going to depend on kind of how the Fed reacts to what's happening and they they see it like you said they talk about it they're aware of it and I think a lot of people just got used to the fact that we couldn't even get two percent inflation for close to a decade. Uh, well below the Fed target, and now that we're you know slightly above it for six months, while that trend could could continue for the foreseeable future, and by no means means that there's going to be kind of like a runaway situation. You know, for example, I have I have four notes uh, from the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe in my office, and it, and they total 326 million Zimbabwe dollars. So probably not anywhere near you know th- th- those levels at any point. And then just real quick, Brian, last parting words. Uh, I know I've asked you about a lot of different topics today, but as of recording, a lot in the news, a lot in the headlines around oil and natural gas. Oil is up, you know, price for barrels around $80 uh, a barrel as of today recording and up about 50% for the year. Talks of natural gas shortages, you know, around the world and India and, and Europe, which is concerning, you know, for the, uh, the incoming winter months. So just a quick you know, a couple of words on on oil uh, and uh, natural gas, and kind of your your thoughts on that. Yeah, so this is interesting, and I would say uh, similar similar issues we have in more broad sense is that you know everyone is talking about climate change, right? Do we need to to uh, you know go to basically go to carbon neutral uh, in in a relatively short period of time? And this is discouraging investment in new you know, new production or new, new, you know, new wells for to drill for oil and things like that. So, you know, the fact that, you know, you know that in the future, you know, the, there's going to be less, right? Where certainly in terms of uh, using fossil fuels for transportation and, and heating and things like that, all of this is going to have to be less in the future. Everyone is aware of this and that's discouraging investment today. So one of the reasons why we have such high oil prices, why, you know, you don't see a really, in the past, if you had oil prices at this level, there would have been a surge of investment. Everyone would have been rushing to increase production. But instead, you know, we see very little being invested in, you know, exploration for new for new sources of oil and, and, uh, and not, again, not a lot of drilling, even, even natural gas. You know, you don't see that very sudden reaction to the to the higher prices. And I think it's because of the longer term thinking that, okay, you know, we don't want to go overboard and invest too much when we know that, you know, in the future, the demand isn't, um, you know, that, that we're, we're structurally changing, you know, to, to uh, you know, more of uh, clean energy. And I think we're seeing this again in, in a broader sense, since the pandemic hit, if suddenly there's very strong demand for certain things, that you know haven't we haven't seen in the past, and again, it's hard for businesses to invest because they think the demand will be temporary. You know, when the pandemic's over and life goes back to normal, the demand won't be there. So you know, I'm not going to invest a huge amount of money to build a factory to increase capacity when I don't think demand will will uh, will last very long. But this is uh, you know again one of the reasons why you see such high inflation, why you don't see stronger response. From the business side to increase capacity is is the temporary nature of what we're we're going through, and I think again it's true on in terms of energy uh, uh, as well. So 
you know, we may be in this situation for for a while where oil prices are are higher than uh, you know than than we're used to. But again, from an economic perspective, it, the impact of this is not nearly as big as it as it used to be. You know, again, we were talking about the period of high inflation in the seventies. That, to a large extent, that was triggered by the oil crisis and much higher oil prices. But the economy is you know, much, much less dependent on oil prices than it than it used to be. So, you know, I don't think this will have a uh, you know, very serious impact on on the economy, you know, over the next year or two. Great. Well, I, I appreciate touching on that because I feel like while these are all just enormous issues between the debt and deficit, inflation, demographics and, and oil we could probably do a podcast on each one of those topics just individually, but I think you were able to nicely and concisely just, just summarize that for clients. And I know that they'll greatly appreciate it because it, it come one, if not all of these topics comes up in just almost every conversation we have these days. So uh, Brian just cannot tell you uh, how much we appreciate you joining us today. And just wanted to remind the audience that if you have any questions regarding anything that we discussed today, uh, feel free to reach out to John or myself uh, and be more than happy to uh, address any of your uh, questions or concerns and i uh, hope everyone has a great rest of uh, fall and we look forward to speaking with you again soon thank you neither ubs financial services inc nor any of its employees provide tax or legal advice you should consult with your personal tax or legal advisor regarding your personal circumstances as a firm providing wealth management services to clients ubs financial services inc offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an sec registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC registered broker dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, different in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they read carefully the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at ubs.com slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA, member SIPC.